Hello and welcome to the Still Unsponsored Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Zach. How do you want to be introduced? Uh, I'm Elliot, Chris's younger brother. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what you want to be known for. (laughs) Yes, is the answer. I I don't know, man. Okay. Um, what What do you do for a living? Uh, I am a data scientist up in the Portland, Oregon area. I mostly do uh, work for a huge tech company um, in their R&D division, but um, technically... Thou shalt remain nameless. That shall remain, remain nameless for now. You can probably figure it out if you do some Googling. But uh, mostly I do work for them, but technically I'm employed through a startup called Interject Data Systems, and we are awesome. Well, there you go. Sounds awesome to me. This was a great episode already. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've really sold it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, uh, last night, so last night, Saturday night, uh, Friday night, Friday night, Friday night, you're, you're in town for Thanksgiving. Yeah. We're recording episode 10. We said, wait, this is the episode 10. This is the episode 10. Well, we could release it as like episode 11 or something. It's kind of a letdown. We could just, we could just skip it. I don't have wine. I'm a letdown. I have beer at least. Yeah. Elliot's got beer. Zach, what are you drinking? iPhone. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Okay. So, um, episode number TBD, (laughs) episode number TBD, probably 10. Uh, damn it. (laughs) We're, we're having audio issues as well because Elliot's microphone's crazy. Um, all right. So we were sitting at dinner uh, a certain number of nights ago that we can't exactly remember because we've been drinking a lot of wine. Uh, and I was asking a lot of questions about uh, attribution vendors. So this is like the new hot thing in the marketing world, which is like, hey, we're going we're gonna to roll out a analytics platform that's going to be on top of your analytics platform that it's going to go beyond last click attribution and tell you what you should actually invest in. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which no one actually heard that because it was probably just like <laughs> on the other end. Yeah. You could also try talking into the front of the mic. <sighs> God damn. this shit again. Fucker. <laughs> <laughs> Recorded live, everybody. Is that, that's better now. Yeah, that's better now. Okay. Okay, so my big questions were, how does that freaking work? And is this just magic slash snake oil? Uh, Because I kind of thought it was. And I think that what we can do is probably in the space of about 30 minutes, distill this down into like a marketing manager's buying guide for an attribution vendor. And the questions that you should ask, uh, you know, to make sure that your vendor is not full of crap. You picked a good one. Because I know what I'm talking about. No. Elliot knows what he's talking about <laughs> on this particular topic. Well, well, uh, I guess caveat there. I don't know too much about attribution vendors. However, the way they were explained to me, I can make guesses at how they're building their models, and um, based off of how their models are built, um, if I were shopping for an attribution uh, vendor, uh, I would have certain questions. Okay, uh, so to, to let's. Sure. Let's, for the broad base of listeners, explain what, what theoretically, what an attribution vendor is supposed to do. So they're supposed to take as much data as possible, like all your analytics data, any data the vendor itself might have access to, all of your spend data, and build you an attribution model that says that it wasn't actually 
your brand terms or your retargeting that converted this customer. It was upstream, some traditional media that you bought or something, something else. Uh, you know, uh, it was actually the display prospecting or, or whatever. Um, and my thoughts were, well, if you had incomplete data sets, how would you do this? Is this just magic or like what, what is actually happening behind the scenes? So what is actually happening behind the scenes? If you had to guess. So based off of the way it was explained to me, um, I, I would guess that what they're doing is they're running some sort of classification model that essentially takes a input set of attributes um, or fields and guesses as to what type of class it is. Is it a um, you know click type class? Is it a you know uh, link from vendor X, vendor Y, vendor uh, Z? Um, and so classification models typically fall under what's called supervised learning. Uh, supervised learning is uh, means that essentially you take your data set that you have really well curated and you hide and mask um, the class in your data set and then you create a training data set and you train your classification model with the training data set and then you test it with your test data set to see how accurate your model is. Um, so the first question is, is it a supervised uh, classification model? Um, if they say no, then you, the question is, well, maybe Elliot got it wrong about what type of model they're using. Um, but if they say it's unsupervised, it's snake oil. Don't buy it. Um, why, why would it be snake oil? Like, um, because they have no way of cross-validating their answers. So they can make up any sort of number, and they could be, um, they could be doing a whole bunch of things like overfitting their data and uh, having... Uh, whole, all sorts of problems. So really, basically, what it, what it basically this would be like like bare knuckle drug testing, where you're just like you're not having a, a controlled set. You're just like giving drugs to people, and if the it seems like net net it works, then you're calling it a success. Yeah. So so the example is is that uh, it's the um, false positive rate versus the um, true positive rate, and so what you want to know is you want to know. Um, how many times I, you know, so the, the classic example is a pregnancy test. If I go up to a um, male human and I say, congratulations, your pregnancy test comes back as positive, that's a false positive um, because it's biologically impossible. Has that happened to you, Zach? <laughs> oh, I can't say that one has happened yet. <laughs> but the point is, is that a lot of models need to, uh, need to tell you, yeah, you have a false positive rate of X. Those will exist, th that will exist, and that's okay. The point is, is that you understand how much is there. Um, and so what this boils down to, I think the big takeaway that we had in our conversation is that there's this thing called an ROC curve, which is a receiver operating um, characteristic curve. And it was invented by the US military during World War II um, with uh, essentially their radar technicians, when radar was still kind of a quiet thing, to be able to say, the signal that we're seeing is actually an enemy plane versus it's, noise. Just, it's just noise. Mm -hmm. And so um, ROC curves are extremely simple curves that essentially the closer they, uh, you know, uh, it, it has an XY axis. On the Y axis, it's true positive rate. On the uh, X axis, it's false positive. And then um, a straight line means you have a really, really bad model. A line that is curved uh, 
towards the zero on the x mm -hmm. and up, so it's really left skewed. Mm -hmm. um, left skewed isn't quite right, but I'm trying to paint a picture you're, with you're, words. You're trying to like describe <laughs> in, audio in audio something a graph. That, <laughs> that took you a master's coursework <laughs> yeah. on a marketing podcast. Yes, exactly. So forgive me. I, I'm sure there are data scientists out there listening, going, "Probably oh, that's not. No. okay." Okay. No. Well, again, I'm trying to explain this, and I. I'm doing a poor job, so forgive me. But the point is, is that you can Google ROC curves, and um, if your vendor, who is essentially selling you an algorithm and selling you a model, won't show you an ROC curve or a cross-validation model or something that essentially tells you how good it is at picking out um, false positives from um, false negatives, from true positives, from true negatives, uh, then there's no, there, there's zero confidence and trusting the model they have. Um, and it probably means they didn't vet it. There is kind of, just to ramble here, there is kind of the flip side, which is if you go and ask these questions to like people on Wall Street, they won't tell you either because their models are so, um, but, okay, so, so much intellectual property that let me they ask don't you this. share. So mm -hmm. uh, the ROC curve, is that going to be for each client? Or is it going to be for like because a Wall Street yeah. person wouldn't tell you theirs because they're trying to use their proprietary algorithm to mm -hmm. predict the market yeah. or something, right? Yeah. Um, but these vendors are basically essentially like the Wall Street analogy might be like build new asset classes for mm -hmm. every you know for every right. client. So every client should have a different curve? Um, yes, but if they're making the sale to you, they probably don't have your data yet, and so they probably can't give you one um, for, for your data. Um, so ideally what they would have is they would have an ROC curve case study or a white paper that was like, look, this is our flagship client that you can email and ask questions to, mm -hmm. and this is what their curve looks like, this is how we cross-validate their data, um, this is our sampling strategy. This is how we, uh, another important question um, that's also case by case is this is how we vet the data that builds our model. Um, that is something that is more of an art than a strict science. Okay. Um, but again, that's one of those things where if you're, um, if you're having that conversation with your vendor and your marketing manager, maybe bringing in a data engineer with you or a data scientist if you employ one um, to kind of feel out the way they handle um, eccentricities in your data. Because all okay. companies have eccentricities in their data. Um, and I, I think we could pretty safely assume that, well, okay, so th this is where it gets tricky, right? Because we're an attribution vendor, you're probably talking about someone that's willing to plop down you know, $200,000 uh -huh. a year for this service, yeah, right. right? So that means that you know, you're probably spending a couple mil a month on, sure. on you know, media or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's definitely a, a like high, you know, high class thing. So maybe, maybe they do have data engineers, maybe they mm -hmm. don't. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the data engineers might not necessarily be familiar with the marketing side. Yeah. I think that the point is, is that if you don't have somebody who's familiar with how these models are built, a data engineer will kind of at least be able to raise a red flag of like, whoa, that's not the shape of our data. You know, a good data engineer, um, or even just like an analyst should have uh, a gut instinct of like, yeah, our data doesn't actually look like that. Okay, um, so what about other bullshit detectors? Like, should they have patents or proprietary information? Or like, if you ask, you know, like, yeah. you know, 
or if you ask like what is their system built on like would they know that information they would i don't think that that's quite a uh as much of a detector right now because i've seen in the portland area a lot of kind of startups be like oh we can do you know these sorts of things not particularly in the marketing space um and they're built off of the same data science platforms of tensorflow or um uh, scipython or an r stack um all of those exist most of them probably they wouldn't patent anything um if they did get a patent uh that's kind of weird a lot of it uh, in my opinion a lot of it is something that you don't ever want to patent if you have um, because you don't want it to be released in 10 years you want it to be held forever it's it's intellectual property that is so secret that nobody knows it so so back up a bit yeah. so you kind of threw out a couple of, what was it three kind of major platforms or stacks or yeah. not so this it sounds like a lot of these attribution vendors are kind of using baseline mm-hmm. software mm-hmm. intelligence whatever and then almost throwing crap on top of it is that accurate uh, in, so in my opinion, I've seen a lot of, quote, data science companies who use um, a lot of different stacks. There's more than just three. Yeah. three I just mentioned yeah, three. Yeah. Um, and they just throw crap on top of it. Um, kind of, you know, so my philosophy on it is that um, what separates a script kitty, um, if you will, from a data scientist or a true data professional is somebody who understands the randomness mm-hmm. within your own data set. Um, and so that means controlling your cross-validation, understanding your ROC curves when you're doing classification, understanding the, how the noise in your data sets occur, um, and also understand sampling and that um, sampling innately has noise in it. Uh, so, you know, for example, there are a lot of companies who are just like, well, I th- you know, threw my data at this model and this model didn't work. It's like, well, yeah, because you were using the wrong sampling techniques. You weren't doing uh, what's called bootstrapping or uh, bagging mm-hmm. uh, or random forests or etc. And uh, what this means is that uh, they spend a lot of time on this model part, but I would say 90% of getting a good model isn't actually writing the model because those are pretty well defined. It's cleaning your data and understanding the shape of your data before you put it into Interesting. a model. Um, and this is actually kind of where we came to uh, our conversation a few nights ago is that uh, if I was running a company that I knew had a really high ability to classify data based off of attributes of somebody, I'd be charging a lot of money for mm-hmm. it because that means that my source data is excellent and that would be very, very expensive to produce. Interesting. Um, so, okay, so in that vein, like thinking about like, okay, if the end goal is to be able to tell you like what the true cost to acquire is of, of a customer knowing like as much information as possible like one of the arguments that we've had is should you trust someone like google to tell you because on one hand they have a shitload of data on the other hand they may be biased or a third party that may be independent because you're just paying them or like but the downside is they don't have access to like the the network of data that you know that a facebook or google might yeah, so and I think that that depends on, again, your specific use case and what you're actually looking at. A company like Google or Facebook might not actually be building a model. They might just have the data, right? They might just know, oh, if they click this link, it comes from here. And because we own the entire data pipeline, mm-hmm. we know exactly what everything is. So then there's no false positive there's because... No, exactly, because it's it, it's just like balancing accounting books. Mm-hmm. It's very yeah. simple. Um, 
Uh, yeah, they probably would be biased, but um, they're also... Well, no. because they're going to build a model for everything else. Yeah. And so exactly. what they could say is they could say, we're not going to allow any false positives, which would still bucket a bunch of stuff into an other category because yeah. they would bucket it other rather than, yeah. rather than saying, actually, we're going to assign yeah. attribution to someone else. Yep. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and actually, that kind of gets to one of those key points of like, if you just ask your vendor, how do you know if it's a false positive or not? I mean, that simple question will should lead into this this uh, conversation of how they're cross-validating and training their data sets and how they're using RFC curves. But um, if they're using the model, I suspect they're using, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, but that simple question should lead into a whole bunch of technical vetting. And if they don't have a clean answer for that, then I would be very scared. Mm -hmm. so and I've seen a lot of people not have clean answers to that. So the answers are, or so the the like buying guide would kind of boil down into like, uh, into how do you how does your database learn, mm -hmm. and tell me about your false positives. Yeah, uh, essentially, how do you know you know something? It, I mean, it kind of gets into you know philosophy there, but uh, there's a lot of money spent on that, and that's why Google and Facebook are Google and Facebook because they spend tons of money knowing what they know. Yeah. Um, awesome. You know, what do you, what else are you thinking, Zach? I just, this is so cool stuff. I have nothing to add. All right. <laughs> like, okay. So now we could end it right there, but, and I didn't ask mm -hmm. you this ahead of time, but do you, you did some really cool work, uh, for your, like, what do you call it? Your capstone project or whatever. Yeah. Do you want which, to talk? Which one? Uh, the reversing out privacy. And oh, oh yeah. Um, so do you want to talk about that first? It gets, it gets really nerdy really fast. Okay. I'm, so I'd probably put your audience to sleep, but, but I think that at least at least who's listening right now, yeah. if they are in the marketing <laughs> field, they are on the nerdier side because okay. so are we, Okay. uh, they if they're still listening, they've, they've made it through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I know one guy in San Francisco that's going to be interested in this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, this is for you. One guy in San Francisco. <laughs> what? Yeah. What side will probably be interested yeah, in this. Okay. Uh, so, well, just go. Tell us what. So, so tell us what you did. One of my major research interests right now and throughout my kind of masters was what's called differential privacy, and it's um, the it's a creation of a Microsoft um, kind of like Skunkworks research lab um, that, uh, in full honesty, Microsoft doesn't use. Apple is one of the only people who are like fully committed to it, which is why I buy Apple products. Um, that's not sponsored by Apple. Hey, we're um, still on sponsor. I know. Man. I'm just saying that, like, when they said that they committed to that, I was like, I'm on board. User privacy is awesome. So, um, to explain what this what this is, it's a concept called differential privacy, and in any sort of database, um, the basic level of security is to anonymize a data set. So, what that means is that they're going to have an entry for Elliot, but they're going to replace the words Elliot Whitling with a random ID number, mm -hmm. um, often a, a global unique identifier. Um, the problem with this global unique identifier is that if you start hitting multiple databases, you can actually reverse engineer somebody's information. And I did this with, um, there's this actually famous diabetes study with the Pima Indians. And uh, what that is, is that they uh, essentially took a whole bunch of women who um, either had children or were about to have children and checked them for type 2 diabetes. The Pima Indian people unfortunately have really high prevalence of diabetes, but they were able to build one of the earliest um, perceptron models, it's a 
Uh, I won't get into the details there. But they were able to build one of the earliest perceptron models to essentially predict if a woman was going to have diabetes. It's pretty cool. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, the problem is, is that the way they anonymized the data was with an identifier. I built a web scraper that went through, Am uh, I was about to say Amazon, Ancestry, and it um, built family trees for the Pima Indian population because unfortunately they're a relatively small population that uh, don't leave their region very often, so they're very sequestered. And I was able to, out of the 600 participants, uh, positively ID about you know, 10 of them, mostly the people with outliers, like the people with a lot of children or something like that, mm -hmm. um, and essentially go, well, uh, I know this person is this based off of the attributes of uh, the data set of, well, in 1973, they would have had this many kids. That's what it says in the database. And based off of Ancestry.com data, there's two people in this population and one of them is a male. Mm. So it's the female. Mm -hmm. um, so this is called a linkage attack. It's really popular. Uh, don't do it for fun because it's very, very rude. Um, <laughs> but uh, and to the Pima people, if anybody from Pima is listening, I destroyed my scraper and I do not have any remnants of your data um, except for the published data sets. Um, and uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be cool with that at the same time nerd out. Uh, but the point is, is that differential privacy should protect you from that by essentially adding random noise each time you talk to the And database. so what is differential privacy? Differential privacy is this idea that every time an analyst asks, or anyone, asks the database a question, the database gives you a slightly different answer. Mm -hmm. And so it will tell you a answer that has a bounded amount of noise on it um, based off of the entire data set. So if I asked it Elliot Whitling's age, the true answer is 29. Mm -hmm. But it might give it, uh, well, you know, based off of the population of the query you just asked, I'm going to tell the user 33. Um, and the idea there is that um, there, there's a lot of uh, math that gets way too deep for a podcast too fast, but the point is that it gives you answers that when used in aggregation are still useful to things like medical studies or useful for customer analytics or useful for really any learning model but at the same time or protects targeting targeting yeah totally but at the same time protects the individual from uh, a ceo going i want to know what's going on with my wife's mm -hmm. medical history mm -hmm. or my ex-wife's medical history you know it really uh, protects individuals so for example like everyone knows the story of like someone who got a job because they uh, because they like targeted someone hyper specifically on facebook right like i want this particular age group at this particular company at this until the sample size is so small that you're going after that one person mm -hmm. and so i think that as we as we talk a lot you know nerding out at night over wine uh not necessarily on the podcast there's this tension between like wow this is really cool targeting that we can do as marketers but as individuals that's hyper creepy mm -hmm. and i don't really like that you know there's that much data about me out in some database yeah well and so you're totally right the the drawback with differential privacy is that there's a very economical approach to it and so you might get to a certain point where the database goes, too many questions have been asked about Elliot. I'm never going to return any more data about Elliot, hmm. um, which is great for the user, really bad for the company that poured millions of dollars in mm -hmm. curating a data set, mm -hmm. because it now means they're, they're essentially putting a lifespan on their data, which I don't know any company, except for Apple, who is willing to do that. Um, 
And so it's, it, I'm really hoping that either we can have this culture shift that like, yeah, we actually need that, or that maybe there's kind of differential privacy 2.0 that uh, can, can solve that problem for people where it's like, yeah, we'll still give you answers about Elliot, but the, the answers are gonna be vaguer and vaguer and vaguer until, um, you know, until we reset and then something happens where again, he's anonymous. It, it's almost interesting to, you know, take topic one that we were talking about attribution vendors mm -hmm. where they're like kind of guessing about what's going on. And we made this offhand comment that's like, well, Google or Facebook would probably just know. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, and then this comment where it's like, okay, so if you're malicious and you're willing to query a database enough times, you can hone in on that particular mm -hmm. person, yeah. you know, it's like, Okay, so attribution vendors are perhaps a, this like intermediate solution that's not going to stay around. Not that anything in internet marketing stays around that long, unless you're Google or Facebook. Um, but well, still, give it time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Um, look at where Yahoo is now. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, like differential privacy actually yeah. may be the thing that people are talking about uh, in terms of attribution because it's like, well, how many times can you ask a question about a certain user and their behavior before the database locks you out on yeah. that user? Right. Yeah. That's, I've never heard of this, so it's pretty cool. It's, it's kind of an obscure topic because even though Microsoft spent a ton of money pouring in, uh, you know, to pour into this and a lot of effort mm -hmm. and like just absolutely brilliant researchers, to my knowledge, they haven't implemented it in any of their um, systems. They could be doing it and just not telling anybody. Yeah. That's also very possible, but the only company that I know of that has publicly said we are doing this actively is Apple. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So, yeah, I hope more people learn about it because um, if we start demanding it as consumers, um, it'll be good for everybody. Yeah, and this is, you know, I think a lot of the discussions that you brought up were particularly around, like, medical technology, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, but, you know, probably... The marketing side of mm -hmm. it is the more like direct attack on someone's like actual privacy yeah. um especially since a lot of the databases are like well it's anonymized yeah. right like your email's a hash yeah. right but it's, it's but it's, it's easy it's, to break i mean okay so talk about that well well okay so email's a, a hash right um Sure, you might not be able to find the entry. So let's that hash let, let's you, assume for a second you're not breaking the hash directly. Yeah, because because encryption. The, encryption, that's hard, right? right? Uh, encryption is, is good. That Use encryption. Um, but <laughs> I, I don't know how else to say that. Uh, but the point is, is that um, a lot of people's data is spread out across multiple databases and are not controlled by a single database entity. So what that means is that you can find my email address on LinkedIn, and if you compare my uh, United Healthcare data with my full name, Elliot Whitling, and then you put that onto LinkedIn, you now have the email address that I probably use. So mm -hmm. we're talking about things that are probably more advanced than this, but an example yeah. might be uh, the the adultery website. Uh, oh, oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, Ashley Madison? Ashley, Ashley Madison, Madison yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then people start taking the passwords out of that and going and figuring out like who's who. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually a case of a full linkage attack that happened. I, I want to say that it was... Massachusetts or um, one of those M states. Forgive me, I don't remember the particular example. I don't know, they're all the but same. They're all the same. Um, <laughs> but uh, essentially a governor, um, his, uh, his entire healthcare, he was going through some sort of healthcare crisis 
and his entire healthcare records were leaked online because um, his residency was um, public domain information, and his healthcare information uh, was leaked in a in a unencrypted database, but it was anonymized. Mm. But based off of doing several linkage attacks, um, somebody was able to be like, "Oh, hey, our governor has kidney disease, or <laughs> you know, whatever it is." Jeez. Um, so it's not hard, um, especially since there's databases everywhere. Well, sleep tight, kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, what's, what's, we can, we can do a couple of quick hits. We're at 28 minutes right now. So we're, we're probably like down to rapid fire. The trip to fans kicking in for me too. Oh yeah. Did you actually some have some turkey? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, you have- that's also part why I'm so quiet right now. Cause I'm like, I had the brownie. Oh. So like I had a sugar high and now the trip to fan. I'm like, mm. You don't right. have to lie. I know that this is like pretty boring stuff. No, it's actually really cool talking. stuff. Okay. Uh, it's actually really cool. What's, stuff. what's the difference between a data scientist and a data engineer? Okay, so this gets into like what a lot of, this is a huge conversation. This is one that is not a quick hit. Um, yeah, but, but distill but, it down into like 30 okay. seconds for in me. Elliot Whitling's <laughs> opinion, um, a data engineer is somebody who Seth builds. Seth Godinized this for me. <laughs> like so, so basic that it doesn't matter anymore. Okay, the data engineer builds uh, pipelines and storage for data. So what that means is, okay, the tweets come in, they go get stored here, they get stored like this so that there's fast indexing and our data stores scale and connect. Um, The data scientist, um, he or she might be doing something else like, okay, based off of those data stores, um, I'm doing something that uh, goes beyond just your KPIs. It's, It's a learning that has a massive amount of uncertainty to it. So you're, uh, and so it kind of goes, you know, data engineer, you need that to make sure your data exists. Could that also be like a database administrator? Totally could. Yeah. And a lot of companies, uh, traditionally they're database administrators. Um, I like to expand it out to data engineer because, mm-hmm. uh, for example, Twitter or Facebook, they have like column store data sets and um, graph data, uh, graph databases as well as relational mm-hmm. databases. So it, it kind of blows up to the skill set that is not just mm-hmm. database administrator. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing like a lion's share of the work. There's the analyst who's gonna be looking at your KPIs every day going like, you know, hey, our books don't balance, or hey, we have you know low sales, things that are very certain based off your data. And then your data scientist, he or she is gonna be looking at your, the data set and making inferences that are not 100% correct. There's going to be a lot of failures in those inferences, but if you have a fantastic uh, data science team, they can also just change the world, like Netflix's prediction model of, oh, hey, you were watching um, you know, uh, Murder, She Wrote. You probably want to watch Luther next. Um, so the follow-up question would be like similar to one of the Q&As that we answered, which is like, you know, should you insource or outsource your, your uh, you know, marketing management or something like that? Mm-hmm. So at what point in a business's life cycle, you know, and granted that's like a super, you know, generic question, but like at what point would you expect to have certain types of people in your organization? You should have an analyst and a engineer at some point day one. And that might be the same person, but if you don't understand your KPIs, then what are you doing? You're not driving your business with data. You're an insane person. Um, hey, we've said that before. Valid <laughs> point. Yep. 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 Um, I honestly, from the consulting I've done, a lot of companies bring in data scientists because it's a sexy title, and they want to say we have a data scientist on our team, 
and they don't need that. They need a data engineer and a data analyst. Mm -hmm. um, when you start building models that deal with a lot of uncertainty, that's when you need your data scientist, and you'll know that because you're, you'll go, our analysts are only bringing back so much information. There's this thing that we want to do that we can't learn from the data we have. Mm -hmm. So for the marketing audience, this might be going from uh, understanding clickstream information. So it's like an analyst is going to help you say like, you know what, people bounce on this page, people convert here. It seems like this changing this button color has, has improved conversion by X percent, right? Um, but your data scientist might help you say, you know what, based on a giant set of customer data, we can say that because, you know, because we these are our best customers. If we do these things, we can turn more customers into our best customers. So like a customer lifecycle management type model. Totally. And um, to be honest, from what I've seen, you have to be relatively mature in your data sets for that. Um, I unfortunately- what, what does mature in your data sets mean? Uh, it means uh, that you have really reliable data that has gone through several iterations. It has vertical, uh, not vertical scaling, excuse me. It scales in the type of data that comes into your databases um, and also horizontal scale. I'm using the wrong terms here, I apologize. Uh, <laughs> to no one in our audience. To no one in your audience that knows this. But, <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> but the point, I, I, I keep saying the wrong words, so I, I'm sorry. But essentially the point is, is that you have um, a wide variety of data and at the same time, because your data scientist is gonna need that, at the same time you have a large volume of data um, and that uh, your analyst is able to answer the questions they've been tasked with. Um, I, I really think that, honestly, for most organizations that are kind of either in the startup or in the like, we're just trying to get our feet under us in the data world, um, an analyst is going to be way more return on investment for you mm -hmm. than a data scientist. Um, and probably if you hire a data scientist, they're going to be doing a data analyst's job until you have... Uh, the infrastructure built. Uh, and that's, uh, you could be saving a lot of money by not doing that. Okay, so what is a large data set? That's, a, it varies from data type to data type. I mean, the data sets I do, we get maybe a terabyte of data in 10 minutes. Um, uh, <laughs> so that's large. <laughs> yeah, but, but maybe we get, at the same time, you know, I would say once you start getting over like a billion rows in a relational database, you start getting into the large databases where you have to start doing things like database partitioning. Um, right. But it really depends on your database engineers, how your um, how your data uh, warehouses are set up, because you might have a company like Walmart, for example, who might have like 50 years of transactional history, but really the only the last three weeks matter, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and so really the or, data that or let me ask you this like they might have 50 years of data but let's just for the sake of simplicity yeah. say it's over a thousand SKUs. now it's probably more like a yeah. you know million SKUs or right. something like that but does that mean that like you know thinking about the i'm thinking like square footage on the floor but mm -hmm. like does that mean the database is not actually that large and not really right. that complicated right i mean there, there's a lot of questions to, about this and again this is kind of gets down to like a case-by-case -case basis of what large is um, because, like I just said, we generate a terabyte every 15 minutes or so. Um, but Would it be fair that, to say it's not the size, it's how you use it? That is well said. <laughs> Nailed it. Because I was going to say... <laughs> Thank you, Zach, for showing up today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Mic drop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why we have it on a stand, so you yeah. can't do that. <laughs> yeah, so you can't drop it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but only uh, out of that terabyte, only 100, 120 megabytes of data is worthwhile. Cool. And so, berries. Cool. How can people find you? Um, I just started a blog, Elliot or E Whitling, com is my awesome new WordPress blog. You can find me on Twitter. I don't know my Twitter handle, so go to my blog instead. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, but, uh, and if you really love me, then, I don't know, uh, find Chris and Zach and they can get a hold of me. <laughs> cool. I'm selling I, myself well here. I take I a referral fee, just so you know. <laughs> it's okay. <Yeah. laughs> referral fee of zero. <laughs> That's not sponsorship. <laughs> yeah. Or is it? Might be. I think the FTC we call it sponsorship, but maybe marketers wouldn't call it sponsorship. It's like you know, it's not all our debate for another day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like we, we didn't take yeah. money up front. You're not taking the risk. Like yeah. we are. So you know. Anyway, yeah. uh, we we can debate that some other time. Uh, all right, uh, that's it. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you. Bye.